So yes, great to see everyone again. Thank you for being here. So last time I met with you all, I was speaking about my personal response to recent events in the US, namely the killing of George Floyd and the anti-racism protests that it sparked in cities all around the world, including New Zealand. And I understand from Steve that you've been reading Joseph's book on mindfulness and that you've just finished the chapter on mindfulness of the mind. So today I thought to try to bring these two themes together to some extent to see how classical Dharma teachings might inform how we respond to the contemporary challenges that we find ourselves dealing with. So first I'd like to come back to the Satipatthana Sutta itself, to the section on mindfulness of the mind, and read you just a few phrases from the discourse which you might be familiar with from having studied Joseph's book. And I wanted to begin here because this section invites us into a very particular way of relating to the mind. It invites us to simply know what's happening with our mental activity, without reactivity. So it says, And how, practitioners, does one in regard to the mind abide contemplating the mind? Here one knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted, and a distracted mind to be distracted. It then goes through a few more examples of mind states, finishes with one knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. One knows a liberated mind to be liberated and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. So the first three mind states that are singled out for attention are lust, anger and delusion slightly different ways of translating the three core afflictive energies, usually known as greed or compulsion, hatred or aversion, and ignorance or delusion. So the section on mindfulness of the mind starts with just recognizing the presence or the absence of these three afflictive states. And there's a progression towards increasingly more refined and subtle states for example, knowing whether the mind is concentrated or unconcentrated, liberated or unliberated. So notice that the language used here is completely impersonal. The Buddha doesn't say, notice when you are lustful or angry or deluded. He doesn't even say, notice when your mind is lustful or angry or deluded, concentrated or unconcentrated. He simply says, know whether these mind states are present or absent. And right there is the invitation to understand that these mind states arise due to impersonal causes and conditions. 
So we don't need to identify with them, hold on to them, force ourselves to get rid of them. At this stage in the development of the practice, all we're instructed to do is to simply know, are they present or absent? That's all. Now, this is very different from how most people, without some mindfulness trainings, tend to relate to their mental activity. Generally speaking, they tend to take their thoughts and emotions pretty personally, believing them to be true, real, and who I am. So, for example, I'm so angry, I'm so depressed, I'm so bored, I'm such a bad med meditator, I'm such a failure, etc. Instead of, as the Sutra is inviting us to simply recognize, oh, anger is arising. Anger is like this. Tightness in the jaw. Buzzing in the mind. Painful, vengeful thoughts. Oh, moment of self-compassion is like this. Slight sense of release is like this. So in that snapshot, the quality of bare awareness that's being cultivated there is very different from the usual way we relate to our minds. Without some mindfulness training, most people tend to either pay no attention to their thoughts until they've got into some kind of trouble, or they believe them completely and take them personally. But as our mindfulness gets stronger, and as we practice with mindfulness of the mind, it becomes easier to recognize that thoughts are just thoughts. In and of themselves, they don't actually have that much power. So what actually is a thought? According to neuroscience, it's just a series of tiny pulses of electrical activity in the brain. And a thought only has exactly as much power as we give it. So the more solid we make it, the more weight we give it, the more seriously we take the thought, the more we cling to it. To that extent, it causes stress and distress. The opposite is also true. The more we can know our thoughts as just thoughts, the more we release identification with them, the more freedom we then have to choose which ones we respond to and which ones we simply let go of. So in various ways, the Buddha's teachings invite us to look at and to deconstruct this process of identification with mental experience because it's the identification that lies at the root of so much of our suffering. Most of us, though, don't see that most of the time. Without some insight into anatta or not-self, we don't understand how we ourselves are actually complicit in constructing, concocting, fabricating a fixed and solid identity out of the flux of sense contacts, feeling tones, perceptions, formations, and consciousness. So in that list, some of you might have recognized it as being the five clinging aggregates that the Buddha defined as dukkha, as stress, distress, or suffering in the first noble truth. 
Now, this teaching on the five aggregates subject to clinging is vast. We don't have time to go into it in detail tonight. But what I'd like to do is give you a bit of context and then focus just on a couple of these clinging aggregates, namely perception and formations, because these two are most relevant for how we see ourselves, how we see each other, and how we see the world. So generally, the five aggregates are broad categories of experience that the Buddha highlighted because they're aspects of experience that we tend to cling to, take personally, and to identify with. And the first one is material form, which includes our physical bodies. And I think it's fair to say that most of us tend to take our bodies pretty personally. We tend to identify with our physical appearance, our size, our shape, our skin color, our sexual attractiveness, our age, our health, our physical ability, and so on. The next clinging aggregate is feeling tone or Vedana, which I'm guessing you're familiar with from having gone through Joseph's book, right? You've done the section on the second foundation of mindfulness, which is Vedana, feeling tone. So the understanding that with every sense contact at any of the sense doors, in other words, every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste, every physical sensation and every mental activity is automatically registered by our nervous systems as being either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And when there's no mindfulness, we tend to cling to pleasant feeling tones and resist unpleasant feeling tones. Or if they're neutral, we tend to space out, get bored, look for something more stimulating. And again, if there's no mindfulness, those basic reactions of the mind often then get amplified in a kind of chain reaction that ends up strengthening those core afflictive energies of greed, hatred, and delusion. And under their influence, we tend to harm ourselves and harm others. So, so far, I think that's relatively straightforward. The next two clinging aggregates of perceptions and volitional formations are where it starts to get more complex. Because this is where the mind takes the raw data of experience and uses it to construct a fixed, solid, permanent identity, not only for we ourselves, but also for others. So this might get a bit technical for a while, but hang in there and I'll try to bring it back to direct experience soon. So the clinging aggregate of perception, or sanya to use the Pali word, refers to the mind's capacity to recognize and to name what's being experienced. So with every knowing of a sense object, perception or sanya arises to perceive or recognize what the experience is. So, for example, right now, I'm guessing you all can recognize computer screen. You're recognizing the sound of my voice. 
You're probably recognizing some of the faces on the screen. So perception is going on all the time, but most of the time we don't even notice that the mind is constantly generating this stream of perceptions out of the raw data of experience. So we take color, shape, form, texture, sound, sensations, and so on, and categorize or label them as objects or people or ideas. There's nothing inherently wrong with that capacity of the mind. It's automatic. We can't stop it from happening. And it will be very hard to function in the world without this ability to recognize things. So the problem is the clinging to the perception and taking it to be a static, solid, permanent reality. So as soon as we name or label something, it tends to become fixed as only that thing. So for example, if I were to show you this glass, you can recognize, right? What is it? It's a glass. As soon as we recognize glass, we tend to stop taking in the uniqueness of this particular object. So you might not see it, but it's actually square. And we just see a glass, it's a glass, it's a glass. Okay, it's a glass, the mind moves on. And we start to create a world of static concepts. And we often relate to those concepts in quite a superficial and disconnected way which allows us to treat them as commodities to do what we like with. Now, this is bad enough in terms of inanimate objects, but we also do it to people and to whole categories or groups of human beings, which I'll come back to later. But just to say that one other significant aspect of perception is that it's with this function that the mind creates a sense of time. Because when we recognize glass, we do it by referring back to our previous experience of recognizing what a glass is. So somewhere back in our developmental history, we learned that a container that's clear and has this shape and texture is a glass. And so now we compare our present experience of glass and recognize, okay, it's a glass. So we never really see things newly. We're always comparing them back to a storehouse of previous experiences from the past. At the same time, perception brings with it a sense of I, of me. The I who remembers that this is a glass. And then I'm in here perceiving this glass out there. And then usually, whenever we see an object, we recognize it, we go straight into whether we like it, don't like it, or I'm indifferent to it. And then often, all kinds of other mental fabrications about it too. Memories, stories, associations, assumptions, narratives. So that level of complexity of perception is actually the next aggregate, the aggregate known as mental formations or sankhara, sometimes translated as volitional 
formations. And this refers to the mind's tendency to make associations, to construct narratives, to actually fabricate entire worlds out of these basic perceptions and then inhabit these worlds as if they were absolute reality rather than something that our mental processing has concocted for itself. So perception and volitional formations have a close relationship. And often it's not possible to draw a distinct line between them. But with this teaching on the aggregates, the Buddha's not so concerned about exactly which experience fits into which category. The point is to see through the clinging to or the identification with the experience. So you probably all can recognize times when your mind has looked at a particular thing or had a particular experience and gone straight into from that simple perception to moving into recognition and then a whole stream of consciousness change of chain of perception about the thing. And when this runs amok, it becomes known as papancha or proliferation. And you have a sense of just how quickly the mind can move from perception to constructing formations to spinning out in all kinds of often unhelpful or even harmful thought patterns. So the key is to see that this is a process. And in case that's sounding a bit abstract, we can perhaps get a sense of how perception and volitional formations work together right now. So even as you're sitting here now, take the example of sound as you're listening to me. This process of perceiving and of recognizing words and forming sentences and meaning is happening moment to moment right now. It's actually quite freaky when you really tune into what's happening here. So in my own visual field right now, my eye door is registering little squiggles of black lines on a white screen. And my brain is perceiving these squiggles as words because of past learning, and it knows these are words to be spoken. So it sends signals to my body to use the muscles in my diaphragm to push air across my vocal cords and to use the muscles in my tongue and my lips to form a particular sequence of sounds. These sounds vibrate the air in this room and the computer's microphone picks up that vibration and converts it into electronic signals that very mysteriously, magically get transmitted to each of your computers and your computers replicate those sounds by causing the airwaves in your room to vibrate. Those vibrating airwaves touch the auditory cilia inside your eardrums that allows your ear to hear the sounds. Your brain then perceives or recognizes these sounds as words, strings them together in hopefully coherent sentences and makes meaning from them.
Is that true? So we're sitting here just thinking you're listening to a talk, but when you actually break it down, it's pretty incredible. And the meanings that you're making from what I'm saying are not inherent in the words because the apparatus that's receiving them, namely your body, heart and mind, is not a blank slate. So each one of you has your own life histories, personalities, conditioning of all kinds. So the words that I'm saying will resonate slightly differently for each of you. And the meanings you form from them will be colored by the aggregate of your own sankhara, your volitional formations. So it might be hard to catch this in action when I'm speaking whole sentences. So just to play with that, I'm going to speak three words slowly now and invite you to see if you can notice that initial perception of hearing the sound the recognition of what the word is, and then see if you can also notice the almost instantaneous forming of sankara around it, perhaps emotional or mental reactions to the word conditioned by your own past history. Okay? So the first word, peaceful. The second word, pus, P-U-S. And the third word, actually two words, post office. So did you notice that basic perception with each word? And any... Uh, Movement of the mind into reactions, associations, or memories. Possibly running off into proliferation, narrative, story. Normally this process is happening so fast that we don't catch it in action. And also it doesn't happen in terms of just one single linear strand at a time. In reality there are multiple feedback loops that flow into each other and co-create, construct, concoct what we think of as reality. And at the center of that reality, usually creating a sense of a fixed identity out of all of that flux. And again, this is the process of identification which the Buddha recognizes as the source of so much of our suffering. The good news is that with mindfulness we can start to see through those stories that we're telling ourselves. So the term sankara is often translated as volitional formations to highlight the role of intention in this constructing process. So in other words, our mental fabrications are not a given. There is an aspect of choice about whether and how we construct our reactions to that experience. If there wasn't choice, there would be no hope of freeing ourselves. And mindfulness is the first step, catching that constructing process in action so that wisdom can clearly see which views are harmful and which are onward leading, taking us in the direction of ease, 
happiness, peace, freedom. So that's the overall purpose of our practice. But returning now to the issue of undoing racism that I started with, we can see how this understanding might inform that whole process too. So as I mentioned in my talk here a month ago, understanding our own conditioned racial identities in terms of sankharas or formations can help us to depersonalize the whole process. We start to see that those deeply conditioned and societally reinforced aspects of who we take ourselves and others to be are not absolute realities. They're not just who I am or how society is or the way things are. This is not an easy process to navigate, though. And as I'm sure you all know from your own experience of exploring race and racial identity, it's fraught with challenges because of the long personal and societal history of wounding around race. So recently I found an article by the social justice educator Shaquille Choudhury and he's describing very clearly why we need to take care with this theme. He says, in order for learning to occur, emotions have to be modulated carefully so as not to overwhelm the nervous system of the learner. Issues like racial and gender justice are the most triggering of subjects as they activate core parts of our identities involving the survival parts of our unconscious mind. In this mode of fight, flight, freeze, big feelings can overwhelm our systems, shutting down the possibility of learning as our prefrontal cortex, the thinking self, goes offline. So Shaquille has uh, a book called Deep Diversity in relation to all this that I found very helpful. And as he says, issues like racial and gender justice can be very triggering. So we need to approach them carefully, gently, with great kindness and compassion. And even with that intention, it's likely that at times we will get triggered into reactivity of some kind. It's just the nature of the topic. But there can be very profound learning even in those very uncomfortable reactions if we can approach them with our practice tools of mindfulness and investigation and an underlying orientation to courage and compassion. So what might we actually do if we recognize that we have been triggered in some way? In my own practice, there's a technique that I developed that some of you may have heard me refer to. I jokingly call it post-mortem mindfulness. And post-mortem mindfulness is a way of trying to understand some kind of reaction that we had after the fact so that we can get more clarity about how we got triggered in the first place with the aim of being able to prevent that same reaction from happening again. Now, technically, this is not classical mindfulness because mindfulness is supposed to be in the present moment. It's more a form of inquiry or investigation. 
although it is based in bringing awareness to what's in the body and the heart mind now as we recreate whatever happened during the reaction. So this technique can be quite useful for exploring those habitual responses or perhaps overreactions that we recognize are based in some kind of deep conditioning. Perhaps a flare-up of anxiety or anger that feels to be out of proportion to the actual situation, but maybe also feels very familiar in some way. So in my own practice, when I've become aware of something like that, I wait until the conditions are right, meaning I have time, I have space, and I'm feeling relatively balanced and at ease. And then I set aside a specific period of meditation to go back into what happened. I try to imaginatively replay the situation in slow motion, almost frame by frame. And I do this with as much embodied mindfulness as possible. So I try to stay out of the intellect and all its thoughts and assessments and judgments and arguments and so on. Because I don't want to risk digging the ruts in the mind even deeper. So to help me stay connected with the body, I tend to do this practice lying down. And I put one hand on my heart and one on my belly so that I can feel into the sensations in the body more directly. And then I gently bring to mind the situation where I got overreactive in as much detail as possible. And I try to listen very carefully to the responses in the body and the heart. And sometimes there are physical sensations, sometimes there are images, sometimes unexpected memories or associations. And if I'm patient, sometimes more subtle or complex emotions start to reveal themselves. And then I might use the technique of mental noting to try to identify what these emotions are. So this is also a training in emotional literacy. And that emotional literacy those can give me new information about what caused the reaction and help me to understand how those default habit patterns took over. And then with that new information, I'm in a better position when if next time that same situation starts to play out, I can catch it earlier and hopefully prevent it escalating into the same degree of reactivity. So as I mentioned last time, this process of exploring race has been extremely revealing for me because it can show that sankhara are just sankhara. They're impersonal conditioned formations. They're not my fault. But I can take responsibility and let go of the ones that don't serve or perhaps are even harmful. And again, this is the deeper motivation of why I'm trying to do this work. Because if I'm serious about living a whole life path, bringing Dharma to every aspect of life, then all of it needs to be grounded in non-harming. So 
Personally, I feel a sense of duty to look at racism and all the other forms of social oppression, to see where and how I might be out of ignorance contributing to harm, and then reduce that harm and, where possible, find ways of mitigating it so that all beings, without exception, might be safe and free from danger and harm. So thank you for your attention. May all of us know peace.